How Did You Think of That? with Temple Grandin. I'm Rosalie Winard. Perception is a deeply personal and individual experience, according to author and neurobiologist Dr. Susan Barry. She says our environments, relationships, and actions shape and reshape our senses throughout our lives. She presents this idea in her latest book, Coming to Our Senses, A Boy Who Learned to See, A Girl Who Learned to Hear, and How We All Discover the World. In the book, Dr. Barry tells us the stories of Liam McCoy, who was born nearly completely blind, and Zora Damji, who was born totally deaf. Later in life, they had surgeries that restored their senses, and Barry discovered they had to learn new ways of being. This book is a look at how our brains process raw material into meaning. Sue Barry is an emeritus professor of biology at Mount Holyoke College. She has a PhD from Princeton and is author of numerous papers on brains and brain cells, neuroplasticity, and author of her previous book, Fixing My Gaze, A Scientist's Journey into Seeing in Three Dimensions, and what we are talking about today, Coming to Our Senses, which looks at how our brains process raw material into meaning. We all do this individually. Dr. Barry was dubbed Stereo Sue by Oliver Sacks in a 2006 New Yorker article called Stereo Sue. In it, he explores how she came to see in, in stereo vision at 48 years of age. If you're interested in finding out more about this, you could look at her website, stereosue.com. And for those of you who are not sure who Oliver Sacks is, he was a very famous neurologist and author of Awakenings, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, An Anthropologist on Mars, and many other books. We're very excited to have Temple and Sue in conversation. Well, I have to say, this is all making me miss Oliver. Yeah, his birthday's coming up July 9th. How old would he be? 1933? 88. 88 years old. I miss him too. And I know Temple does too. And that's yeah. the way we, we all got to know each other. That's right. That's right. That's it's right. an Oliver reunion. Yeah, um, right. And then Lorna Wing was like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. And, you know. And then what happened was, Temple, we were at this party together. And Rosalie mentioned she wanted to look at some birds in Massachusetts. And then I wrote you back and I said, okay, I did some research. And these birds are in such and such a place. So you came out to visit me in Massachusetts, and we never did get to look at the birds. We just yeah, talked we... the entire weekend. <laughs> that I believe. And that's how we met. So what do you think of Liam and his story? Well, I think it's really interesting. Is It really tells you some interesting things about perception. Um, he did have some partial vision, mm -hmm. but some of the things I thought was interesting, and this also matches up some of Oliver Sacks' work, is that in order to understand an object, he had to touch it. I remember reading about, okay, like a, a toy car might touch that and get a better idea of, of a real car. Or he couldn't differentiate a cat from a dog unless he felt it. Right. He had to, he had to touch to perceive. And then he was really um, kind of discombobulated by the edges of things, edge of a table. And and there's some people with autism have visual processing problems and some of it sounded sounded similar. He couldn't recognize a flat shape drawn unless he counted the sides like a triangle or a pentagon. 
And he also talked about seeing parts of objects rather than the whole. But the thing that I thought was the most interesting thing was that if he was moving, then he could see the clearly and then the object, he understood it. And sometimes he'd just do his own moving to help him to understand an object. And I thought that was really interesting reading about your experiences when you got your eyes um, corrected. You just enjoyed looking at this stuff. Oh man, I guess you see leaves on trees. Right. And I think that the main difference was this, is that I always could look out on a landscape and yeah. understand how things were organized in the landscape. Yeah. Oh, there's a tree. It's in front of the house. Uh, there's a fence. It's between the tree and the house, let's say. Because you can do that just with one eye. And when I got two eyes, or when I got my two eyes working together and could see with stereo vision, then I could see the space between things. So it was as if everything inflated and I had a sense of, okay, there's a tree in front of the house, but now I have a sense of how far the tree is in front of the house. So my the change in my vision from not seeing in stereo to gaining stereo vision and seeing in 3D just made sense. Now the world made more sense than it used to make. Yeah. While for Liam, when he first began to see to see a landscape, let's say, or to see across a room, he had not yet had the visual development to understand what he was seeing at all. And so it was just overwhelming. It was being bombarded with stimuli. Nothing made sense or very little made sense as opposed to my experience where, oh, now things make more sense than they used to make. You take somebody like Liam, he has a very good sense of direction. When I was with him and we were walking around the medical center at Washington University, which is like a maze of buildings. Yeah, yes, yes. I, I would say to him, where is, um, you know, a particular room? And he would be able to point in that direction. And I'd say, where's your apartment? What direction? He'd be able to very confidently point to where it was. I would say, where's north? And I actually had a compass to check this. And he would point to where north was. And then I said to him, so do you have a map in your head? Do you have a map that you see in your head that allows you to know where you are? And he said, not really. He's, his visual imagery, not surprisingly, is not very good, not having been able to see very well for many years. And Liam described an incident where he would talk to his computer science professor a lot when he was in college. And um, his computer science professor pointed out to him that Liam's vision, his new vision after his surgeries that allowed him to see so much better, that his new vision was a lot like computer vision mm. um, because it was very bottom up. That is, he saw the details and then he had to kind of construct the world around him from these small details. And he's, Liam was talking to his, his professor and at one point he said to him, what is that? circle with a cross on it on the door and his professor said what are you talking about i see the door i don't see anything well there was indeed a reflection on the door that liam had picked up it was a small detail but his professor looked at the door and he saw a door and that's sort of as far as he went people aren't the only ones who notice details in her work with cattle, Temple has found that animals are prone to the same skill. 
Now, yeah. the thing I notice is, like back when I first started working with the cattle, is something, I think the animals react to stuff that shouldn't be there. There's a string fence moving, a coffee cup on the ground. There's a vehicle parked alongside something with a reflection, almost like something that shouldn't be there. I, when I was visiting um, Cape Kennedy, I found something that definitely should not be in a launch pad. And nobody else noticed it. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. We were under the launch pad platform. There were some steps coming down. We actually went up inside it. And before we did that, I saw a little motion on the staircase. And I looked, and I watched a raccoon waddle Whoa. down the steps and go into the bushes. And I said, you know, you've got a raccoon living in that space station a space um, um, launch pad base at night. Nobody else saw it, but it's something that should not have been there. Right. And, and, and I just see that kind of stuff. I don't go looking for it. Do we go looking for a raccoon in a launch pad? Absolutely not. It seems like that would be an excellent job for people who have your kind of vision or for people with autism who can spot these details that other people are just not going to see because they walk into a room and they say, oh, it's a room or, oh, it's the launch pad. They, they have an expectation of what it's going to be, and then they don't look any further. And that's kind of an interesting question for any of us. It's like, if somebody else walked into that factory, autistic, neurotypical, whatever, what would they notice? Where would they point their eyes? What would they look at? And I mean, the literature indicates that when they've looked at the way people scan an environment, we all do it in a different way, which means we're all kind of seeing different things. Well, and people have different interests too. Right. And, you know, I'm interested, I mean, go by construction sites. I wanted to look at what kind of forming they're using for concrete. Other people right. would just get annoyed at the construction site. I want to look at it. Right. Even though Temple Grandin is not a trained engineer, she has used her ability to think in pictures to solve engineering problems and improve livestock handling and animal welfare. She admits she's not a verbal thinker and even has a co-author who is on many of her books. You need both kinds of minds. Um, we get too much off in the weeds in detail, but we got to protect you know, the infrastructure. And you know what I think is interesting sort of about this issue with a different type of thinkers is that the verbal thinkers are the ones who write books. And so if they write a book about thinking, that book is going to be a book much more about verbal thinkers than it is, let's say, about people who are not particularly verbal. Because the people who are not particularly verbal may be doing a lot of thinking, but they're not doing it in a way that, that they end up writing a book about it. Do you well, see what I'm saying? Right. And um, we're working on a book of visual thinking. And now Betsy is um, my co-author. She's a total verbal thinker. Mm -hmm. And we have to get this book so the verbal thinkers will understand. It. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm discovering in doing this how different verbal thinking is. Now, she takes my, my rough drafts and she rearranges them in the most beautiful way. She's just magical on how she does that. But then there's some things where I get surprised at the question. And you asked me that the marsh lover would have a way to self-repair a broken metal wheel. Uh, to me, obviously not. You know, I look at it, it has nothing on there that it could repair a wheel with. It. 
I'm just curious, is there anything that you learned about visual processing that you really weren't aware of from reading the, the thing, book? The thing I found that was the most interesting is that how his problems with shapes and, and edges were greatly improved by motion, by seeing things in motion. That was probably the single most interesting thing because some of the other things I've read about some of Oliver's books, like, okay, the, you couldn't, didn't recognize your dog until you touched it. You know, that, that sort of thing. But the motion enabled him to understand what the edges were all about. Right. I and, found that really interesting. And I, I remember him saying um, at one point that when he first began to see better, after he got the intraocular lenses and could see so much more detail, he couldn't do much with his vision except play catch, play catch with a ball. And uh, he's athletic and he always wanted to play lots of sports. So that was part of it. But one of the first things he did after his surgery was to go out onto the driveway with his mother and have her toss the ball to him um, and, and, and catch the ball. And it was one of the first things he was able to do. And again, when you throw the ball, motion the ball's motion distinguishes the ball from everything else because it's the only thing that's moving that's right and he had an interesting experience where at one point somebody threw a ball at him and he saw a circle in the air and the circle got larger and larger and then it hit him in the face <laughs> and and he realized oh of course it's a ball and it appears larger when it gets close yeah he had to learn that at the age of 15. Most of us must learn that, that, you know, when baby, we were uh, infants. No, and right. so it simplifies the problem of seeing. And he even described it that way. He said, when I play catch, I don't have to do any thinking. Of course, he is doing lots of unconscious thinking, but he doesn't have to do all that conscious thinking of, Exactly what am I looking at? What is that? Yeah. How do all those lines and edges come together to form things, you know, form objects? He said, I can just play ball. And yeah, so motion for him was a godsend. The yeah, other thing is, when we look at something, I could look at a chair, you know, where I'm looking straight ahead at the chair, or I'm seeing the chair from the side, or I'm seeing the chair from the back. And all of these are completely different views. And with motion, that is with his own motion of walking yep. around a chair, then he could start to, to understand, oh, this is a chair from the front. This is a chair from the yep. side. This is a chair from some oblique angle. It allowed him to learn how to recognize things. So motion was absolutely critical. The other thing about motion is that motion, seeing motion, and seeing colors, maybe what are called visual primitives, that is you don't need to have a lot of experience to see those things. And other sight recovery people have had the same experience where when they can see, they see different colors. They may not be able to name them right away because they've never seen red before. So they don't, they can't tell you, oh, it's red, but they could look at red and green and say, yeah, those are very different colors. And so seeing colors, and being able to see something move seem to be things that we either have uh, knowledge of innately or a skill to do innately yeah. or develop very, very, very fast. 
And um, so uh, those were motion, color, those were things that uh, Liam could use right away. The other thing about motion is that, let's say you're trying to figure out whether this bunch of colors that you see over here belong to a single object. That would be an, a problem that, a challenge that Liam would have. Well, a given object can have lots of different colors associated with it or different shades of colors, or some of it could be in shadow and some of it could be in light. But when the object moves, it moves up a piece. And so its motion tells you more about its unity, that the fact that it's a given unit than colors do. Well, Tito so it's, 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 a, it's a really important cue. And some other people like Donna Williams have um, talked about, you know, visual distortion. The Tito Makahepatahe, uh, nonverbal, uh, types independently, can't control his movements. Would, I remember him talking about seeing a, a colored blob like on a wall. And he'd see that first and then he'd see the outline, the edge, and he realized it's a door. But he did not see the color and the edges at the same time. It's, right. it, it was uh, somehow the systems in the brain, I know the systems in the brain to shape color, motion, and texture. And these systems, because of a developmental problem, were not working right, even though there was nothing wrong with his eyes. Right. I call right. it the brain was not assembling the graphics correctly. The thing I think is interesting is that some of the descriptions of Donna Williams of sensory processing problems and uh, Tita Makapadahe, um, some of the things are similar not the motion thing, but Donna described one time while well, a black blob was on her lap and she reached down and felt the cat. But she didn't realize what it, that it was her cat until she felt it. You see, yeah. now that's similar. And I remember something, I think it was Oliver Sacks, that the uh, person who had regained his sight didn't recognize his dog until he touched it. There was some right. black and white thing moving around, you didn't know what it was, had to touch it. And so that's, right. that's similar. You see, where that's a developmental problem in the brain because the eyes were fine and uh, you know then of course if you uh, the brain doesn't get input some of these abnormalities in the perception are the same see the thing about rapid motion in animals is in animals rapid motion often means dangerous dangerous things move rapidly like a lion that might leap on right right that's something that moves rapidly so cattle knows little thing that moves off in the bushes some little thing that moves they notice the but frog, when it catches the fly, it's reacting to the motion. That's right. And a frog won't go after a fly if it's sitting still. No, it won't. It's yeah. triggered by motion. It's triggered by motion. There is one aspect of motion that Liam found very confusing, and that was optic flow. Imagine when you're driving um, and, and you're looking at the highway lane markers. They approach you, and then they sort of widen around you, and then they go behind you. So as we are moving, it's as if we know the world is stable, but what our vision is seeing is that the, the, the world is moving past us. Yeah. It's coming toward us. It's expanding around us, like the highway lane markers. Well, to me, and, I mean, obviously everybody knows like utility poles on the side of the road move faster than, you know, than something way off in the distance. Right. Some distant building. Before. Right. Right. And so for Liam, who, you know, initially could only see a few inches from his face, and now all of a sudden he could see so much more. When he moved, 
It was as if he could see the whole world moving past him. And when he walked and when he bicycled, that was okay. But getting on a fast moving train, let's say, and seeing the world zipping by was could be was no. difficult. Or even just walking and turning her head quickly. You turn your head to the right, it's as if the world has moved to the left yeah. and vice versa. And so just turning his head quickly to talk to somebody could be very disorienting. But it sounds like he had a better time if he did the moving. If he like did the, the moving. He did the moving, where if he's on a train or he's a passenger in the car, you know, somebody right. else is moving the train. Right, right. And he's that's exactly right. Moving. Right. When you're doing the moving, whether walking in particular, bicycling. Yeah, you're doing also, the you're doing the moving. You know how much effort you're putting in. You know yeah. how, how often you're pedaling or how often you're striding. And that can, you know, keep the disorientation at bay. So optic flow from fast movement, especially movement that you are not in control of, could be very disorienting. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Temple. It really has been such a fun conversation and got me thinking about lots of different things. And like Rosalie said, I just very recently read The Autistic Brain and I really enjoyed it. I loved the way it was written. There was a certain humor to it. Like at one point, what was the name of the guy you co-wrote it with? Richard Penn. Richard Penn. Richard. And at one point, you're talking about something that Richard did and then you went, he's definitely not autistic. Uh, I don't know. There were, there were just some funny lines. And he in was there. definitely more of the pattern thinker because right. we took some of these tests and 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 I was really good at the grain test and he trashed the grain test and I trashed the other test. And right, and it's such an interesting realization to think about the fact that okay, you know, to get something working really well, you need to have a combination of different types of thinkers. Well, that's right. Okay, thanks. Thank you. It was a great conversation, and thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Hope we All meet right. in person again someday. Yep, that's right. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. All righty. How'd You Think of That is a production of the Utah STEM Action Center in partnership with SQ Media. I'm Sherry Quinn. Thanks to Jolene Bailey for production assistance and music compositions by Rebecca Baker. This podcast is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1745674.